Welcome to episode 90 of the Vancouver Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Drew O'Grizzik. Samantha Ming from the Events Podcast. What's going on this week? Hey, Drew. A lot of interesting events this week. We're going to start with Tuesday. The first event is Machine Learning on Google Cloud. This is a discussion-style event where they will pick a few problems that you're facing and come up with a solution together. This is at 5.30 at the Lighthouse Labs. The next is a Startup Office Hours event. There will be a bunch of tech leaders from the local community. So if you want to get feedback or guidance, check out this event. It's at the Profile in Gastown at 6.30. On Wednesday, week three of the Intro to Deep Learning with Fast AI returns. It is happening at the Boeing Vancouver Labs at 6 p.m. The next event is a marketing event. Learn how to identify your top growth channels that will help you hit your marketing goals. This is at Build Direct at 6 p.m. Moving on to Thursday, there is a talk from Robin Larson, who is a nuclear engineer. She's going to share her story on how she transitioned to a front-end developer in nine weeks. Her talk is at 5.30 at Brain Station. Another event you can attend is the Women in Tech End of Summer Networking Party. Don't miss this party at 5.30 at Mobify. There is also a Saturday event you can attend. If you're interested in web development, Lighthouse Labs is hosting a web fundamental course. Learn how to build your very own website using HTML, CSS, and a little bit of JavaScript. I'm Samantha Ming, and that's this week's top events you should check out. And we're here with Kelsey Hightower. Thank you very much for joining us, Kelsey. Awesome. I'm excited to be here. Why don't you tell us a little bit, um, I guess you're with Google now. You were with... Um, uh, Core OS. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, about your past and your background and your current position? Yeah, so I started my life in tech support like many people do mm-hmm. and uh, got into things like configuration management. So spent some time at Puppet Labs, you know, working on infrastructure as code. And my two most recent uh, ventures or journeys were Core OS, where I kind of discovered, you know, not just containers, uh, but distributed systems, things like etcd, and my first exposure to Kubernetes. And now I'm at Google uh, working on Kubernetes and things related to container technology and cloud in general. Yeah, that sounds pretty awesome. I I also started in tech support. I had a lot of fun with it, but wanted to dive in further and further and and kept going. Uh, So Kubernetes, tell us a a little bit more about this. I've played around with it. Uh, We're actually using it in production, but what exactly is Kubernetes? I think if you start at the technical bits, you know, it's a platform for managing applications with a few abstractions built in. And, you know, a lot of those are very opinionated. So, you know, you can imagine having a collection of machines, CPU memory, network storage. We want to abstract away that stuff. So what Kubernetes does is just bring an API that says, hey, if you package your applications in a container image, then we'll give you a declarative API on making sure that those applications run across your servers. And that includes things like networking, uh, persistent storage, and you know cross-node uh, communication in terms of each of those things being able to discover each other and talk to each other. You mentioned platform. So is this, this is really a platform more than just a deploy tool? Yeah, I would probably say even a little bit more flexible than a platform, right? So it does have a lot of opinions, you know, out of the box. People can use the command line tool, kubectl run, kubectl expose, and get this Heroku-like feel for running container images on a set of machines. But the framework part is where Kubernetes is highly extensible, right? It promotes extension. 
So there's lots of hooks to add your own custom volume plugin. So if you have on-prem, you have a storage array that doesn't quite have container support, you can write your glue code to make Kubernetes understand how to talk to it. And then on the other edges of networking, let's say you have a F5 load balancer, you can write a little bit of glue code to integrate that with Kubernetes service discovery. So it's a big framework that makes a lot of things pluggable, even the container runtime that runs your application. So it's a, it's kind of this new beast that's underpinning a lot of modern uh, platforms going forward. That's kind of interesting. It seems to be solving problems in some slightly different ways than what we might, tradi- I don't know if we can say traditionally, think of as platforms like, uh, like Mesos or uh, Cloud Foundry um, or Heroku. What are some of the sort of key differentiators, I guess? Yeah, so I think if you think about, let's start with like Heroku or Cloud Foundry, we know that in the middle of those systems, on the internal side, they have something that looks like Kubernetes. But the truth is, you know, that internal machinery isn't the most interesting thing you want to look at or touch day to day. So when you talk about the traditional, you know, use of the word PaaS, P-A-A-S, you know, you think about Heroku and Cloud Foundry, and that's more of a workflow model on top of these distributed systems. So when you check in your code and you say, git push, and something happens, and maybe there's a container image built under the covers, but that's not really what you're concerned with. You're, you're concerned with taking my source code and running it under the right policy and parameters so that my customers can use it. On the other side, far end of the scale, when we start to talk about things like Mesos, for example, you know, Mesos is this two-part scheduling framework, whereas Mesos can take a bunch of machines and becomes more like a distributed kernel, meaning it can go out and say, here's the amount of CPU memory and other resources available and interact with the second part of a scheduler like Marathon, Aurora, Hadoop, or Spark. And those things um, provide more of the workflow like you would see in Kubernetes or maybe even a Cloud Foundry. So, you know, you're just talking about various scales of it. Kubernetes sits in the middle where for most people, if you put CI, CD on top of Kubernetes, then you have what feels like Heroku, this continuous deployment target. And a lot of people like OpenShift, which has something that's very familiar to uh, Cloud Foundry, that's built on top of Kubernetes. So that's where it becomes this framework for you know larger platforms to play. Okay, so um, let's say... Let's say I'm in a situation. I want to make a, a startup. I need some. I need an MVP for some reason, and I'm considering uh, Heroku. Uh, would I would I discount uh, Kubernetes in that case? You know, as much as I like Kubernetes, I think you really just got to pick the technology that you need at the moment, right? We always try to find ways to justify this complexity and all these moving parts. You know, Kubernetes isn't a free lunch, right? You know, to be transparent, if you were to set up your own Kubernetes cluster from scratch, well, at that point, you're becoming a distributed systems administrator or a Kubernetes cluster administrator. And that's usually not the number one thing that you're thinking about as a freshly starting startup, right? Mm -hmm. So in that case, you really want to compare Kubernetes to more of a hosted offering, maybe something from Azure with their container stack or Google's uh, container engine, which is a fully managed Kubernetes solution. And that way, your decision would be, you know, if I use Heroku, then I subscribe to their kind of build pack model. I write my code, they wrap it in some more code, and I work within their constraints. And maybe those constraints are a bit too tight for your app. And this is where you may say, well, what if I have batch jobs? Or 
machine learning jobs that need a GPU. And this is where maybe walking back a little bit and saying, well, Kubernetes can give me a, a machine agnostic API. So maybe I have to do a little bit more work in packaging my workload. So I have to create a container first. And I have to do a little bit more work of describing my workload. So day one, most people start with YAML and create a YAML file saying, this is a batch job. This is a cron job. This is a long running web service. So that's kind of how you would make that debate. So, you know, if you plan to go with a fully hosted solution, you really start to talk about are the opinions of a Heroku or Cloud Foundry or App Engine too constrained for all of my use cases? If so, Kubernetes becomes super attractive. So if I want to know a little bit more about Kubernetes or get my feet wet, there's a lot of different resources out there, and a lot of them seem to have your name on them as well. Uh, so there's the, the Udacity course. There's Kubernetes the hard way. You've got a pretty interesting uh, repo that you're maintaining there. Uh, and there's also, I guess, the upcoming book, Kubernetes Up and Running. And there's even uh, Kubernetes Slack. What's, uh, what's sort of a, the best way to, to get my feet wet and get going? Yeah, so I did the uh, Udacity course with one of my good colleagues, Carter Morgan. And the Udacity course was a way to, you know, approach people with that particular learning style where they want to have a more self-paced instructor-led, you know, learning environment. So we built that course to satisfy that need. A lot of us really like the idea of just like installing Kubernetes locally on our machine. So you can use something like Minikube. So Minikube's goal is to give you kind of a single node Kubernetes cluster, but you have the full API at your disposal. So that means you can actually go through and find examples. So one way that I like is what are you trying to accomplish? Right? I'm trying to run WordPress or I'm trying to deploy my three microservices uh, in the cloud. So maybe you download Minikube and you try to package your application using some of the guidelines from the introductory material you just mentioned. So I think for a lot of people, I think it should be goal oriented, you know, figure out what you're really trying to do. And there's so many people, great blog posts from various people in the community. There's the Kubernetes Slack, like you've mentioned, where you can get help in determining how best to package and run your application. And also there's this great tool called Helm. So Helm is considered the package manager for Kubernetes. And the goal there is you can take a complex application, let's say something like a Redis cluster, and say Helm install Redis cluster, give me three nodes. And all of the configurations and templates will be baked in. So you don't really have to think about everything on day one. Very interesting. So um, I noticed you mentioned before, if you choose something like uh, like Heroku or uh, sort of a managed task, you're you're kind of buying into to that philosophy or that workflow. What about with Kubernetes? Are you buying into a certain workflow with Kubernetes? Yeah, your own. <laughs> you know, there's this, there's this joke that you know everyone. Uh, you know, likes a PaaS, but there's only one requirement. It has to be built by you. So, you know, when you look at Kubernetes, it's basically that framework. So there's things you have to do for a distributed system. You can't get around those things, right? Having, you know, a consistent store for configuration, you know, having some type of API so that way you can have some contract between your app and the machine. So those kind of opinions are just derived from years and years of best practice from a big community, not just Google. Lots of people, Red Hat, CoreOS, so many people contribute uh, to these ideas, but now they get rolled into the platform. So what eventually happens, though, is you may start off with kubectl and some YAML files, right? But 
really what you want is like, I check in my code, my CI system checks out that code, runs tests, creates container Im images, pushes them to a registry, does some integration tests, and then updates those images on a Kubernetes cluster. So if you step back and you squint, it looks a lot like App Engine or Heroku or Cloud Foundry, right? But I think people do like the idea that they get to choose the parts in the middle. Maybe they want to use Prometheus for monitoring. Maybe they want to use Zipkin uh, to do things like trace their HTTP requests. So I think that flexibility that we get from Kubernetes starts to move the bar much higher. So it's not just scripts, config management, and servers. You're moving way up the stack right below a Cloud Foundry or Heroku. Outside of Kubernetes, now you'd mentioned something, I think Envoy? Yeah, so Envoy is pretty interesting, right? Because regardless of any of these platforms you're using, your apps at some point need to talk to other things. And I'm pretty sure this is an old idea, but what we're calling it now is this service mesh. So there's this idea that we could have tools like Envoy. So Envoy, for those that are new to Envoy, is this external process. You know, think of it a lot like HAProxy but and Nginx, but it has a lot of features built around applications, right? Like it has the ability to provide global rate limiting across your entire app stack. It has ability to send metrics and inject things like request IDs so you can actually trace your request between these. And the way the service meshes work in this case, these processes sit side by side with each instance of your app. So we call that the sidecar pattern. So what happens is if you have a mechanism that can deploy something like Envoy side by side with every application, then what you can do is force all traffic into and out of that application to go through Envoy, which creates this boundary around the network layer. So now you can actually have a centralized way of managing who and how things talk to each other. Why are you so interested in, um, I guess, in the design and the, the way that systems sort of work? It seems like you are at least following your career a little. Yeah, I don't know. I like solving these problems, but I also like preventing <laughs> problems. And I think what most people really want to do, I think in the perfect world, we just want to write code, describe how it should run, and then that's it. And just stop. And when we describe this process, we don't want to have to write a bunch of software to do this, right? Like infrastructure and co as code, I think it has merit, but I don't want to write code to deploy my code, right? I should be able to say, this app needs three copies. It needs to uh, adhere to my security policies and it should just run, right? Logs end up in a central place and those kind of things. So my interest in infrastructure and all of these things around distributed systems are fascinating because we're starting to get to the point where this is true for a lot of people, not for everyone, but it is a way of solving these problems and making them go away. So, you know, on one end, I really like the internal workings of these things. They're very fascinating, especially when they work. You know, we're getting to the point where they are starting to work and the payoff. That's really why I'm very interested in this. When you see this stuff in action, when you see it really working well for people, they get to focus on the other part, write code, describe how it should be deployed, and then they move on to what we think about as real innovation. What's next on the road, I guess, for, for Kelsey Hightower? You're quite prolific, I think, at the moment uh, in and around Kubernetes. Is that where you see yourself for the next uh, few years? Yeah, I think Kubernetes will be around for a while. So it's something that I'm still interested in as, as long as I'm still interested in it as long as I'm still using it and I can provide value to the community, that's where I'll be. 
But I'm also interested in all things around infrastructure, whether it's networking, packaging, there's cultural aspects of this. And given where I am today, there's been this other kind of benefit that goes overlooked a lot. And that's the benefit of being able to help others boost their career, give people advice of how they should talk about technology, encourage people to do so from various backgrounds. And watching people become successful, going from where they are now, and then be able to provide a little bit of guidance or show them some technology in the way that they understand and they can go and leverage or avoid, that has been super rewarding. And I think that moves me or motivates me more than the technology these days. The fact that this stuff actually works, people can actually see a boost in their own careers and grow as people and technologists. So if you were uh, to give some advice to someone just sort of uh, just getting their feet wet with software, what advice would that be? Uh, be responsible and know why you're building what you're building, right? I think a lot of people put too much emphasis on the act of doing technology, right? I put these bits or this text in my editor to produce this binary, right? Yes, those are the emotions that you go through to make this stuff work. But the truth is, that's not why you're doing what you're doing. You know, if you're setting out to build a ride sharing app, your ultimate goal is to give people the ability to get to where they need to get to in a safe, predictable manner, maybe at a, a cost that works for them. That's the goal. And to make that happen, you may develop new features and those features may attribute to that goal. When you start to see yourself doing things that have nothing to do with that, where you're arguing for months over MySQL versus Postgres versus Redis versus MongoDB, you might start to ask yourself, like, is this, is this the most valuable thing that I should be concerned about? Maybe I pick one, use engineering discipline, move on. If it doesn't work for you, switch to something that does. So I think if you're going to get started in software, just understand that software is not the holy grail of software is not writing code in the editor all day. It's the reasons you do that are important. So the faster you learn that, I think you'll be a much better engineer, right? And some, you know, the going is, the, you know, the best code is the code you don't have to write. And sometimes maybe even the code that you remove. But, um, oh, yeah. <laughs> it, it's very interesting that you'd say that. So be responsible. There's, I think a lot of people, uh, I definitely see, I definitely have done it, um, focus on the technology or wanting to play with cool toys or um, what patterns to use to solve certain problems in certain ways that really are more on the tech side and not necessarily um, getting the problem solved. What, what are some good ways to, to kind of steer yourself back on track then? Or do you have any advice for that? Yeah, so I try to get understanding up front because nothing's wrong with geeking out over technology. I do it all the time. And it's one of those things that when you think about the job and how stressful it can be, all the bugs, all the issues you could have, you can make a real negative impact on a company with just simple bugs. And I think one thing that gets us through that is the enjoyment of finding a better way of doing things, the enjoyment of learning solutions to complex things, right? These things really drive us. And I don't think we should get rid of it. We shouldn't dismiss it either. Embrace those kind of things. But before you do that, it's super helpful to get understanding. For example, if you're in a stand-up or you're in a sprint meeting and someone decides that we're going to build feature X, it's probably a good idea to really understand why Feature X needs to be built, who's the target audience for it, and maybe does Feature X really drive well 
with the current platform? Will it support that, right? Will this be a mismatch of features that will lead to pain down the road? If you get understanding on that first, you know, take the time to ask those questions. And once you really are clear, or at least as clear as you could be at that point in time, then it's okay, I believe, to go and really dig into the technical details and implement what you got to implement. But always come back up and ask yourself, is this still the right thing to be doing? Is there a better way? Get additional understanding to help guide you as you make these technical decisions. What's something that you're currently excited about? What am I currently excited about? Hmm. From a technology standpoint, you know, I, I feel like if you do technology long enough, you see patterns come and go. So it, very, it seems like this nice little cycle. So you, you're, you're probably less excited. You probably get more excited about things finally working. You know, we, we have a tolerance for software that's broken and waiting for the next release to fix bugs, maybe introduce a few new ones. But we're starting to get to a point where a lot of this stuff is being super stable. Um, you know, when we look at, you know, offerings like the cloud, for example, watching companies be able to just leverage all of this tooling, whether it's open source or something that's hosted and actually just get to ship their idea. I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. You know, I've, I've seen some moments where I figured, hey, wouldn't it be nice if I could talk to my infrastructure? And you have all of these tools now. You have tools like Siri and Google Assistant, where you can give it voice commands. You can tie that to some webhook and have it parse your commands into actions and parameters and turn around and do something to your physical infrastructure. And being able to do that in a few hours really does make me excited. So now that my imagination is not constrained necessarily by the technology, I think that is super exciting. If there's one book that you would recommend for people to read this year, other obviously than uh, Kubernetes Up and Running, which is supposed to come out on September 7th. Looking forward to that. What book would that be? I don't know. One book that I'm, I'm enjoying right now is uh, Speaker for the Dead. You know, this is a sci-fi novel that's in the Ender's Game series. And I like to just think, you know, step back and say, hey, you know, we have all these social issues. Some of them are rooted around technology. But just kind of... You know, stretching your mind a little bit, sci-fi novels seem to do a really good job of that, of, of thinking about if we have all this technology, we it turns out it doesn't solve all of our problems. And you look at how technology may be the cause of some of your problems, like the destruction of a whole alien race or, you know, people not necessarily satisfied with their lives because purpose has been gone or taken away. I think taking time out to really think about things from that perspective are really great. So Speaker for the Dead, I know you said one. I would probably say Ready Player One. I think they're going to make a movie adaptation about Ready Player One. Uh, you know, that's another great book that I'm, I was born in the 80s. So there's lots of 80s references in there, the video games, the culture. Uh, Ready Player One, I think, is a great read. And, and that's what I've been trying to do lately is detach a little bit from the day-to-day -day and just kind of expand my thinking a little bit. So if people want to uh, reach out to you, what are some of the best ways to do so? Right now, I'm trying to spend a little bit more time in the Kubernetes Slack channel. So just ask, answering, you know, random questions. I typically like to engage in like a screen share session with people so I can actually learn what people, what problems people are running to and offer any advice that may be helpful. Uh, Twitter is also my number one chat platform. So, you know, my DMs are wide open. I'm happy to help people with CFPs, career ideas or advice. 
um, and also, you know, to brainstorm technology, right? So those are kind of my two primary ways of finding and contacting me. Kelsey Hightower, thank you very much for being on this episode of the Vancouver Tech Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Vancouver Tech Podcast. Check out our website, vancouvertechpodcast.ca. Rate and subscribe on iTunes. Much appreciated. You can follow us on Twitter, Van Tech Podcast. Feel free to leave some comments below. You can also hit us up on the YVR Dev, the Vancouver Tech, the Van Tech Slacks. I'm at James. And I'm at Drew. Special thanks to Same Room for hooking us up with an integration that allows us to have a cross-team Slack channel, Van Do you have a meetup that you want us to plug? Email us, show at vancouvertechpodcast.ca. Music by A Shell in the Pit from the game Parkitect. See you at one of the meetups around, around town. town.